Well, this morning we're continuing on through our series on Christian maturity. As I explained last week, we are using the qualifications that we find in mainly 1 Timothy and Titus for an elder as a kind of summary of what a mature Christian is. We understand that the Lord wants those who are mature in Christ to be those who lead his church. And so these qualifications provide us with a kind of cluster of characteristics of what a mature Christian is. So to begin today, since we haven't done this yet in our, our series, is we're, we're going to read these two lists of qualifications. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to First Timothy 3, and we'll flip over to Titus. You can find that first reading on page 992 of the Bibles provided. Listen to God's word from 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now turn a few pages over to Titus chapter 1. This is on page 998 of the Bibles provided. And listen to verses 5 through 8. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This is God's word. So as we said, we're looking at this topic of Christian maturity because we want to grow, all of us, into mature Christ-like people. We're seeking here to define what a Christ-like mature person looks like, and again, using these qualifications for elders as our springboard. We do this because if we look at these qualifications, we see these are things that God desires for every Christian. With the exception of Paul's requirement that elders be able to teach, these are all characteristics we see elsewhere in the New Testament that all Christians are called to, to put on. And so these are useful for all of us, and we are looking at them for all of our edification, not just for, for identifying elders. These characteristics provide us with a vision of Christian maturity. In today's message, we're going to look at what these qualifications for elders have to teach us about a mature Christian's home. By home, I'm talking about what Paul has to say 
about the way Christians re- a Christian relates to their spouse, about how mature Christian parents raise their children, and also about a Christian's hospitality. To put it another way, we see here that Paul expects mature Christians to faithfully love and serve those who are closest to them, their families, and also to serve strangers by showing hospitality. Now, before we launch into what Paul has to say about the Christian's home, I want you to see two presuppositions that Paul is working with that that inform Scripture's teaching about Christian maturity and relationships. So presupposition number one is that a Christian's relationships reveal a Christian's maturity. The way we treat others, those closest to us and those farthest from us, the way we treat them reveals our relationship to Christ. So do we show mercy the way that God has shown us mercy? Do we love others the way Christ has loved us? Are we faithful in the way God has been faithful to us? Do we reflect God's character? You might think of that woman in in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7 who came into a meal where Jesus was eating and she washed his feet with her tears and she dried them with her hair. And the, women, the people around the table were scandalized because this woman is called a sinful woman. She was known for her sin. And Jesus told them a parable, and the, the punchline of the parable is that this woman loved much because she had been forgiven much. She knew how much she'd been forgiven by God, and this affected the way she loved. And he said, those who are forgiven little, little love little. If you have a small sense of your own sin and God's forgiveness, it's going to show up in your relationships. So that's presupposition one. Our relationships reveal. They reveal our relationship to Christ. Presupposition number two is that love flows out of sound doctrine. And we see this in the opening chapter of Timothy. Go ahead and turn back to 1 Timothy and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read the first kind of passage together. And what I want us to see is that sound doctrine and love go together in Paul's thinking. Let's start reading with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. This is Apostle Paul writing to Timothy the pastor. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. 
So Paul begins this passage with a concern that some are teaching different doctrines than Timothy's been entrusted with. And he says these false doctrines, they promote speculations, and, and they don't promote the stewardship that comes from God that is by faith. And then he says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul's concern for the truth is bound up in what the truth produces, which is love. And then Paul ends this section with this long list of sinful conduct, and he says that these sinful practices are contrary to sound doctrine. He doesn't list a bunch of heresies or bad ideas. He lists practices, people who are, who are doing evil. He says their lives are contrary to sound doctrine. And then he makes it clear that by sound doctrine, he means the gospel. So in Paul's thought world, abandoning the gospel leads to immorality. Immorality is a sign that you've abandoned the gospel, that you don't have sound doctrine. On the other hand, faith in the gospel issues forth in love. Love that comes from a pure heart, sincere faith. So we see there's a way of living that's consistent with the gospel, and there's a way of living that's contrary to the gospel. So that's presupposition two. Love flows out of sound doctrine. These are going to be crucial as we examine these qualifications for a mature Christian or for an elder. As we look at this idea of the Christian's home this morning, our project then is to examine what mature, gospel-grounded love looks like in a Christian's marriage, in their relationship to their children, and in their relationships with strangers. By love, we're not talking about a good feeling or romantic love, but we mean the sacrificial, faithful, and wise love for others, service for others, care for others. We're talking about Christ-like love that is the fruit of faith in the work of Christ. So Christ-like love between a husband and wife, the Christ-like love that parents show their children, and the Christ-like love that Christians show to strangers. Mature Christians are marked by this Christ-like love in all of their relationships. So with that in mind, with those presuppositions in mind, let's turn to what Paul writes about marriage. Look again at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And we tell, you find the same thing in Titus, that the overseer must be the husband of one wife. That's the key phrase in both 1 Timothy and Titus. Now, this may sound like the absolute minimum you'd want to say about marriage, right? The husband of one wife. But we should also note that when Paul is giving these uh, qualifications, he doesn't do what I'm doing. Right? I'm kind of putting these qualifications in groups, right? The, the home, right? That's not a group we find in the text itself. It's something that I'm kind of helping us do, organizing these in groups, these all go together. So we could say that above reproach is to apply to a Christian's marriage and everything he does. A husband is to be above reproach or a wife is to be above reproach. We could also talk about these other qualifications. In our marriages, we should not be quarrelsome or arrogant. 
or violent. In our marriages, we should love what is good, pursue holiness and righteousness, and be self-controlled. So if we're defining a mature Christian approach to marriage, we should bring in all of these characteristics. They're all fair game. But it's worth examining what this phrase means, husband of one wife. It could literally be translated one woman man. We can start off by noting that Paul flips this around and applies it to women in 1 Timothy 5. There he's describing the kinds of widows that the church should enroll in in their care program. And there are a few qualifications. He says in 1 Timothy 5, 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Same, same kind of phrase. These phrases call for a believer's faithfulness to their spouse in marriage. Now, in the case of these widows, it may also have been that this careless was only for widows who didn't remarry. But regardless, the mature Christian's relationship to their spouse is marked by an enduring commitment. It's not on-again, off-again love. It's faithful love that reflects God's own faithfulness. The Christian husband is a faithful husband with all that that word entails. The Christian wife is a, is a faithful wife. At bare minimum, that means sexual fidelity within the marriage relationship, but faithfulness clearly means much more than that. The faithful spouse endures in caring for and encouraging and in praying for their husband or wife. A Christian spouse's faithful love is not dependent on the whims of romantic feelings. Faithful love loves when it's inconvenient and costly to love. So Christian, if you want to be mature in your love for your spouse, you can ask, is my love marked by that kind of faithfulness? Am I only kind to them when I'm liking them? <laughs> Where are you tempted to be fickle in your love for your spouse? And how can your knowledge of Christ and his faithfulness, his faithfulness to you, help you grow in faithful love? Mature marital love is faithful. Now, some Christians believe, or some commentators believe, that this phrase, husband of one wife, is trying to forbid the practice of polygamy. We know that there, polygamy was practiced in the Old Testament, but there, theologian Gerald Bryce says there's not much evidence that polygamy was practiced in first century Roman Empire. He says that an officer of the church was expected to be a model of the marital relationship that God had established in the Garden of Eden and that Jesus had insisted upon in Matthew chapter 19, 3 through 12. Failure to do so was a disqualification for ministry. It's helpful that Gerald Bray brings in these scripture references because that highlights another aspect of a Christian's mature love in marriage. Mature Christians seek to increasingly submit to God's word in their marriages. We might look at this more easily if we think of immaturity. Immaturity, or at least one mark of it, is to think that your own ideas are the best. In our immaturity, we view everything by our own standards, right? We measure everything by our own opinions. But mature Christians understand that God has set the standard for love in marriage. 
And they seek to understand what God has said, and they seek to increasingly submit to what God has spoken. And so the mature Christian, when it comes to their marriage, isn't primarily governed by their own ideas or feelings. They submit to God's word. This is so important because the scriptures teaching about marriage are so out of step with our, our own culture's ideas about marriage. And perhaps the scriptures teaching about marriage are out of step with our own instincts. There's few things more offensive to our culture than Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5.23 that, that um, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And therefore, wives should submit to their own husbands. The immature Christian might look at that difficult passage and decide, well, this, this sounds really hard. It sounds old-fashioned. And so just kind of practically, I'm not going to pay much attention to that. But the mature Christian seeks to understand and apply it. We seek to understand why our good God has given this design for marriage. So a good question to ask is, am I growing in my understanding of what God has said about marriage? And am I growing in my love for God's design for marriage? Now, I admit, we don't have time to explore all of what submission means or headship means. This is a topic that really, I think, has to be worked out in, in good conversations among wise Christian brothers and sisters who all love God's word and who are seeking to explain it and understand it and submit to it. But we need to kind of lay down this marker. What is our guide when questions arise? It's God's word. Mature Christians submit their own desires and feelings to what God says. With that said, I think we could add in that maturity requires wisdom. We need wisdom as we submit to God's word. We need wisdom to see the ways that every Christian marriage is the same, governed by God. And we need wisdom to understand that all of our marriages are somewhat unique, because each of them has unique people, right, with our own unique problems, our own unique uh, strengths. The Christian husband needs wisdom in his husbanding. He needs to ask questions like, am I being harsh with my wife? Colossians 3.19 forbids husbands from being harsh. We need wisdoms to, wisdom to discern the way we're acting and speaking. A Christian husband needs to ask, am I living with my wife in an understanding way? As 1 Peter 3.7 commands. Christian wives also need wisdom to evaluate their own conduct. They should ask, am I adorning my conduct with a, a gentle and quiet spirit? Which 1 Peter 3 says, in God's sight, that's very precious. These are not black and white answers, right? These are things that require wisdom. They might require the perspective of someone else in your life who loves you and who knows you. Because there's this element of authority and submission in marriage, we especially need wisdom. What do human beings tend to do with authority? We tend to abuse it, right? Or what do human beings tend to do when they're under authority? They tend to rebel against it, right? It's easy to abuse it. It's easy to rebel against it. We need wisdom. Are we using it well? Christian wives need to have wisdom and to know where they should stop submitting to sinful authority. There's a place to do that. We know that the Lord does not intend us to follow sinful authorities into sin. So you need wisdom to know when authority has gone to where you can't follow. Perhaps more importantly, 
when we think about pursuing a mature Christian marriage, we need to know that the, the, the big issues don't usually have to do with submission and authority. Those things have a role to play, but the big issues in our marriage come down to love. Love that springs from the gospel. The mature Christian husband and wife are seeking to grow in self-sacrificing love. They are seeking to grow as encouragers of one another's growth in Christ, in faith, in the gospel. Are you seeking to grow in those ways? There are lots of ways the scripture gives us for how we can grow in wisdom. To start, we can ask God for wisdom. James commands and encourages us to do that, doesn't he? He tells us, if you lack wisdom, ask of God and ask knowing that he will give generously to those who ask. So we should ask God for wisdom. We should also look to his word. Again, we're submitting to God's word, so seek to know God more through his word, and you will gain wisdom on how to love your spouse. And we can gain wisdom by asking wise brothers and sisters for counsel. This is especially tricky in marriage, right? When we, we talk, about our, talk about our marriages to someone else, we, we know we risk the, the danger of gossiping or betraying the confidence of our spouse. We don't want to do that. So it's hard to know how to talk about it. We also know there's a lot of pride involved and we don't want to be embarrassed by admitting that we have some struggle in our marriage. But let me encourage you, don't let pride prevent your growth in wisdom and maturity. My married brothers and sisters, by God's grace, we are all in the same boat. We are all sinners and redeemed sinners, struggling with Christ's help, against our sin and against our weaknesses and we're struggling to love a spouse who has their own sin and weaknesses we can just say that's true of all of us right without divulging any details that's just true so when you get to heaven the only kinds of christian husbands who will have made it to heaven are the ones who sinned and needed the forgiveness of christ the only kinds of christian wives who will have made it to heaven are wives who sinned and needed the forgiveness of christ There are no perfect spouses in this room. And so if your ultimate desire is to grow in faithful, God-honoring love for your spouse, seek wisdom. Ask for help. Is there any pride stopping you from seeking that wisdom? That leads us to the final characteristic of maturity in marriage. The mature Christian spouse is humble. The humble spouse understands that to be a faithful husband or wife requires the help of God. We can't do this on our own. The humble spouse doesn't immediately blame the other when problems arise. There may be nothing more important to your growth as a husband or wife than humility. Humble husbands and wives seek to grow in obedience to God's commands in marriage. In humility, we seek to grow in conformity to Christ's example as we love our spouse. We saw last week, humility is fundamentally a part of our faith in the gospel. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And like the sinful woman from Luke 7 that we mentioned in the beginning, true humility is wrapped up in the knowledge that we have been given, forgiven much by our great Savior. Do you know yourself to have been forgiven much? This gospel humility in marriage means that we seek to be quick to repent of our sins before our spouse. 
That when we have arguments and there are conflicts, we don't just settle for kind of another stalemate in a long, cold war. We seek true gospel reconciliation. In humility, we also seek to put on more and more of the fruit of the Spirit in our marriages. We could boil down the question of humility to this. Do you want to keep growing? Do you want to keep growing in faithfulness to your husband or wife? And have you grown complacent? All who are married should be striving to be mature. With Christ's help, we want to be more faithful, more submitted to God, more wise, and more humble. And when we look to call elders to serve our church, we should look to see, is he a mature husband? Is he growing in these ways? Are these characteristics evident in his life? A man cannot serve Christ's bride well if he's not first and foremost a servant to his own wife. Now before we leave the topic of marriage, it's worth saying that marriage is not required for Christian maturity. So you may be single and never married, you may be divorced here, and you can still be a mature Christian. The, the word of God is clear. There are biblical reasons for divorce. So as, as pastors and Christians, along with the, the kind of the great tradition of Christianity, we've understood that adultery, abuse, and abandonment are all, are all valid reasons for, for divorce. You can be a mature, faithful Christian and have, have, have pursued divorce for those reasons. You can be a mature, faithful Christian and not have a spouse. These things don't make you a second-class Christian. We only need to look to, to Christians like Jesus, I mean, or not Christians, we need to look to Jesus and Paul to understand you can be single and be faithful, right? We can describe, though, I think a single person's maturity in, this, in many of the same ways we've described the married persons. Are they faithful in their relationships? Are they submitted to God? Is God ruling the way they interact with, with others? Are they growing in wisdom? Are they humble? The mature single person, just like the mature married person, is going to seek to reflect God's character in the way they relate to others. And Paul says in some ways the single person has an advantage in that they have more freedom to use their life to serve others. But just like all Christians, mature Christians don't use their freedom as an occasion to serve themselves, to serve the flesh, but they use it to serve Christ and others. So single Christians, you're called to use your relationships wisely, to serve wisely, to serve faithfully, to serve with humility. Whether these are relationships are at work or in the church or, or with extended family members, care well for those that God brings into your path. You can pursue maturity in that way. Be faithful to God and to those he's called you to love. This also means we can call single men to serve as elders in our church. In some ways, we don't have as much data on them about their relationships. We can't look at their family as easily, but we can look and see, is there, is, are their relationships marked by maturity? Are they marked by wisdom and humility and faithfulness? Are their lives governed by God's word? So we should look for all of our relationships to be governed in really the same ways, by those characteristics of maturity and growth in maturity. 
Well, let's turn now to what Christians, a Christian's parenting looks like. What does it look like for a mature Christian to parent their children? In his qualifications for elders, Paul not only focuses on the marriage, but he, he does direct his attention to their parenting. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. It says, The overseer must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In Titus 1, 6, we see something similar. The elders' children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. We should first address this translation of Titus 1.6 where it says an elder's children are believers. That word translated believers, the Greek word, can also mean that they must be faithful. So if you were just to do a word search on that Greek word in the New Testament, you'd see many times it's just translated faithful. And I think we're helped to interpret the meaning by seeing how the word is contrasted in Titus 1 verse 6. So he says they're to be faithful and not marked by debauchery or insubordination, right? It seems that that makes it much more sense for this word to be translated faithful. And your ESV may even have a footnote there that says that's how it can be translated. And that, that seems to make more sense with what, what God requires of elders and, and what we know about conversion, right? Conversion is not any man or woman's work. No matter how faithful the parent we can't make our children converts. All that we can do is be faithful to teach them the truth about God. Now, in one sense, the fact that Paul focuses on the conduct of our children could encourage us to lean into some of our worst tendencies. I mean, we all tend to be pragmatic, results-oriented people. And so we could reduce Christian parenting simply to, well, what produces obedience? What gets outward conformity? And say, well, that's it, right? Paul wants the children to be submissive. But if we did that, we would produce monstrously evil parents, I think. If you parent in a way that's only focused on compliance, you're very likely going to neglect love and gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul is not advocating a kind of Christian parenting that values compliance above all else. What he's doing is focusing on the obedience or submissiveness of children as a way to say the normal result of a man who's managing his household well is that in general, the children will respect and obey him. Normally, when we look at a family and see obedient children, we're seeing the evidence of a well-managed home. I said normally there, that's not always the case. You could see submissive quiet children and see the evidence of an abusive home. So we have to be careful here. But normally, Paul's saying that's what we see when we see obedient children. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul is focused on the father's household management, right? He's talking about elders who are men. But in 1 Timothy 5, Paul's again talking about widows, and he's talking about young women who are widows, who, who, who lose their husband early in life and kind of the prime of their life. And he gives special instructions for them. He says, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So I refer to that just to help us see that managing the household is, is a team effort, right? The, the husband may have a special leadership role in managing his own household well, but it's something that the moms do too, right? If you look at the, 
the phrase or the word manage the household, it's a, it's a mashup of the word despot and house. <laughs> She's the despot over the house. But no, it's just a word that means master of the house or manager of the house. So mature Christians seek to manage their own household well. So what does that mean? I think we really have to fill that in from other texts of scripture. In Ephesians 6, Paul commands fathers to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He also commands them not to provoke their children to anger. So if we're thinking about managing a household well, it involves this training and not provoking. In Colossians 3.21, we have the same warning, but we also have a concern added that children should not become discouraged. So in a well-managed home, the Christian parents are seeking to teach God's truth and encourage their children. Mature parents are concerned with both. They want to see their children trained up in, in the ways of the Lord, but they also want to be careful not to provoke them to anger and to provoke them to love, to encourage them. The most foundational thing is that Christian parents understand the significance of the stewardship God has entrusted to them. Their children are a blessing from the Lord. And God has positioned parents uniquely in their children's lives to bless them and to teach them. No other person can do that the way that you can. It's a weighty calling. It's a profound privilege. And the immature miss this. In our immaturity, we see children as a burden, or we see them maybe as just a fun distraction for a little while until they cause trouble, or maybe we see them as an outlet for our own ambitions. Those are all immature ways of viewing children. But maturity begins with a right understanding of the high calling of parenthood and the blessing of children. Something we have to fight to maintain because of our sin natures. Christian parents understand that one of their main goals is to pass on the truth about the Lord. Again, we understand conversion is something that only God can do, but we can be faithful in training our children. This has been the pattern God set out for parents for the whole scriptures. So you might be familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 6. Right after the Lord proclaims, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, he commands the people through Moses with these words. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. I was struck by this, uh, this call to be faithful in teaching in a strange way. I listened to a, a podcast about um, Muslims who were persecuting Christians. And this Muslim man who became a Christian was explaining the way that he was so indoctrinated into his Islamic faith. How his parents drilled it into him. How the whole school system was, was about inculcating this faith. I thought, if Muslims are doing so much to inculcate that in their children, and I have the words of life, what am I doing to teach my children? We see Timothy, the recipient of this letter, he was taught in the same way. Listen to First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. From childhood, Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings. So each Christian parent should work hard to teach our children the truth of Scripture. Notice this is not primarily the church's job. Right? This command to, to raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is, is given to parents. Now, the church can help and support you in this. And we, we promise in our church covenant that we're going to do this and try to help each other in this. But this is a job that God has given to Christian parents. And as much as your pastors and your fellow church members love you and they love your children and we pray for them, we are limited in how much we can know them and teach them. But the Lord has given you to teach them. You have this privilege. You are their primary shepherds. You are their teachers. You are their examples of godliness. So in a well-ordered Christian household, Christian parents take this job seriously. We submit to God by seeing what he's placed on our laps and giving ourselves to this work with his help. Now, one reason why parents teach our children to obey our authority is because ultimately we're trying to teach them to submit to God's authority. So I think this is the reason why Paul prizes submissive children, right? He doesn't just want kids to be seen and not heard and be quiet. He, he prizes this because he knows that children who learn to obey their parents' authority are learning to obey God's authority. So, so Christian parents should try hard to train their children to obey, and yet recognizing that there are a lot of dangers on that path. I think most of us parents, just naturally, aside from any Christianity, we want to be obeyed, right? We want our children to do what we say. We want to see quick obedience and happy obedience. We don't want people talking back to us, right? We just need to admit it's possible to want obedience for sinful reasons. We might idolize control, or we might idolize a peaceful home, or we might idolize a certain vision of the family. We might have sinful ambitions for our kids, so we want them to obey. When I tell you to pick that major and work hard at it, you obey. So we have to be on the lookout for sinful desires for obedience that we have in our hearts doesn't mean we stop trying to encourage obedience. It just means we, we're frequently repenting of the sinful ways or the sinful motives we have for wanting obedience. So we have to keep our parental authority in its proper place. Our parental authority is ultimately in service to another authority. Our parental authority is meant to point to the good authority of our Lord. And just remember, how did Jesus rule? He ruled from his cross, right? He ruled as he laid down his life for his sheep. I think when we do this, when we are able to place our authority within its proper context, it helps us to be much more gentle and patient in our use of authority. We're not seeking our own ambitions or our own reputation. We're not just out to get ours. We're seeking to teach our children to see the Lord's good, kind, gentle, strong authority. So we're not out to defend our own honor. We're out to honor the Lord. And so Paul says, 
elders are managing their household well should do it with all dignity. Few things are more undignified than apparent sinful anger. But nothing is more dignified than someone seeking to honor the Lord. Now, this is a hard question we should all ask ourselves every day. Every parent needs to bring their, bring their heart's desires for the Lord and say, am I seeking to honor you or honor myself in my parenting? Mature Christian parents see themselves as servants. Now, this doesn't mean that we just do everything for our kids. That would not serve them well. But we serve them by helping them grow to maturity. We serve them by taking time to teach them God's word. We serve them by repenting of our own sins before them and against them, asking for their forgiveness. We serve them by being examples of faith, hope, and love. The kids who are raised in these kinds of families will not be perfect children because no children are perfect. But Paul says we should expect such children not to be marked by debauchery or insubordination. We might translate those words as wild living and rebellion. We should expect a well-ordered Christian home to bear fruit, namely children who recognize the goodness of their parents' authority by being generally obedient. For parents, the application then should not be to go home and try to get your children to be as compliant as possible, right? Like a well-trained dog. The, the application should be to consider questions like this. Am I taking God's calling on my life as a parent seriously? Do I see this as something he has given me that I do under his authority and by his power? Or we could ask, how can I grow in being more consistent in teaching my children God's truth? When I correct my children, am I seeking to be wise and loving and reflecting God's character? Or am I out of control and self-serving in the way I correct? Am I setting an example for them? An example of faith in God and love for others? Are you praying for your parenting and for your kids? Fathers have a unique role to play in this. We're called to lead our families. So we have to ask ourselves, am I setting an example of godliness? Part of being an authority and using it well is asking those people that you lead, how am I doing using my authority? Listening to their feedback. Are you being deliberate in managing your household well? This doesn't mean you have to have elaborate plans and spreadsheets and charts. But just start by being on the lookout for what your family needs. Seek to pray and ask God to help you meet those needs. Work with your wife and ask, how can we serve our children in the, in the place where they're at and anticipate what's coming? You know, you can begin really simply with just reading a passage of scripture around the dinner table, singing one of the hymns that's in your bulletin this week as a way to teach them the things of God. Once again, we're reminded if we lack wisdom in this area, if we, if we don't know where to start, we can ask of God, ask the Lord, and trust that he will give us wisdom. He gives generously to all without reproach. When we come asking for wisdom, the Lord doesn't shake his finger at us and say, you fool. He gives wisdom to us. You can get wisdom by asking other wiser parents how they raise their children, how they can encourage you to manage your household well. Wise parents are working together 
to raise their children, to manage their households well by the grace of God. Now, inevitably, when we talk about children and their behavior and elders, the questions start to get very specific. We want to know what kind of behavior from a child might disqualify a man from serving as an elder. We go to the extremes. I'm just going to quote a brother pastor from Washington, D.C., Matt Schmucker, who wrote this in answer. He has two criteria. He says, if a child is still under his parents' authority, living in their home, his behavior would disqualify his father from being an elder if, A, it is openly insubordinate and publicly harmful to the man's reputation, and so the reputation of the church and Christ, and B, causes people to question whether or not the man can give oversight to the church. Now, each church is going to have to use their own wisdom as they make those assessments of any particular situation. But I think that these are at least helpful places to start. Do the behavior of children bring shame upon the man in Christ's church? Do they raise questions about whether the man can provide oversight? But again, I don't think our takeaway should look at the extreme cases. Instead, we need to be asking, what does God require of all Christian parents? We could summarize mature Christian parents with the same things we use to summarize mature Christian spouses. Growing in faithfulness, submitted to God, wise and humble. Mature Christian parents are every day repenting of our own selfishness, and seeking to put on the love of Christ because he's first loved us. So are you parents growing in the knowledge of the love of Christ? That's where maturity begins. The last aspect of a Christian's home we want to look at is the Christian's love of strangers. So if you look at the Greek word hospitality that appears in 1 Timothy 3.2, it's just love of strangers. That's a literal translation. We see this practice practice of hospitality is commended in Scripture because it reflects God's own love toward us. Right? While we were sinners and enemies, alienated from God's covenant family, Christ died for us so that he could bring us into his family. The Lord adopts us and brings us into his home through faith in Christ. God is the ultimate shower of hospitality. Because of all this, Christians are commanded themselves to show hospitality. This isn't something that only pastors are called to do. So let me just cite a few texts that you probably are familiar with. Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Right? That's written to all the Christians at the Church of Rome. 1 Peter 4, 9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. There's a special call for Christians to show hospitality to each other in the body of Christ, and that hospitality extends out even to to strangers. In the passage that Michael read for us earlier from 3 John, we see hospitality, although it's not specifically mentioned We see these people who were hospitable to their brothers in Christ who apparently were missionaries. They were were providing for them and they they were called here to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So it seems like they're not only provided for in the believer's homes, but sent off with provisions for their journey. But then we read about this man, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first 
and he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. It's hard to imagine what a bizarre thing, but he apparently excommunicating people for, for showing hospitality to certain brothers. And after Paul, uh, John gives this example, he wraps it up by saying, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. He's clearly, clearly saying this in reference to this hospitality that he's been writing about. To the contrast, could not be more stark. Be like God. Do good. Show hospitality. Theologian Gerald Bray defines hospitality as welcoming people into the home, feeding and lodging them, attending to their needs, and sending them on their way, rejoicing. And he goes on to say, a person who is not hospitable was regarded by both pagans and Christians as deeply antisocial. That last description, deeply antisocial, really struck me. Our personalities are all going to differ in how social we are, right? Some of us are more antisocial than others. Some of us like parties more than others and big groups. So we're not talking about just personality differences. But if we do find ourselves to be disposed towards being antisocial, God calls us to fight against that. Hospitality is rooted in understanding that we're people made in God's image and that all people made in God's image are precious in God's sight. They have, they have value simply because they are people. And God loves people. Christ died to save people. And so we seek to show them our love. We especially seek to show love to those for whom Christ died, for the household of faith. And so in hospitality, we seek to show practical love and care for them. And we do this for the sake of their encouragement in the Lord. We should say that hospitality then can have a broad range, right? It could be you know, giving a cup of water in Christ's name to a brother or a sister or to a neighbor passing by. Hospitality can look like adopting children and welcoming them into your home or, or fostering children. It can kind of be everything in between. It can be housing a missionary for a night while he's passing through or, or giving him your home for a season while you're traveling. It can mean all kinds of things. Hospitality begins, though, with a heart attitude of openness to others. As Christ welcomed you, welcome others into your life. Hospitable people also understand that everything they have is a gift from God, and so they use what they have to serve others. I've often heard Mark Dever say when it comes to, to uh, serving other people that we all have kind of different amounts of, of uh, ability in our emotional wallets, right? In terms of serving people and being with them, some of us have just a little bit of tolerance for it, and some of us have a lot. But whatever you have in your emotional wallet, use it for the sake of Christ. Open yourself up as much as you can as God would help you to others. So if you've been given a home, use it for the glory of God to serve others. If you have a good restaurant fund, use it for the glory of God to serve others. Use your family life to, to welcome others in and to be an example to them. We should say that Christian hospitality is not marked by its level of refinement or polish. Right? So you don't have to have a fancy house. It doesn't have to be spick and span. You don't have to have fine china to be hospitable. You don't have to be like an expert at like 
you know, arranging food on plates and making it pretty. That's not required. I mean, if you're good at that, great. Use that for the Lord too. There's nothing wrong with beautiful things. But we need to ground our hospitality, not any of those external things, but in a desire to encourage and serve others. This is why hospitality must mark the mature Christian and those we call as elders. Right? Mature Christians are seeking to help others grow in Christ. They're, they're using what they have to do good to others, to do spiritual good to others. So we want to see elders practicing hospitality. If you're wondering where to start, then just begin with asking the question, how can I use what God has given me to practically serve others? How can I use what God has given me to encourage others in their faith? Wherever you are, you can start growing in hospitality. I'd encourage you to ask, how can I use my home to strengthen my relationships with other church members? Or just how can I use my time and my meals to strengthen my relationships with other church members? Or how can I use my home to strengthen my relationship with my neighbors for the sake of the gospel? One practical tip, you can take this or leave it, but we all know that October 31st is approaching and you might decide to turn off the porch light and all the lights in the front of your house and just hole up under the covers, you know, in front of the TV so that no one knows you're there. Or you could go sit on the front yard in your lawn chairs with a big bucket of candy. And it's a great way to get to know your neighbors. It varies by neighborhood, but we found it wonderful to meet a ton of our neighbors by being out there on Halloween. We show hospitality, though, because the, love Lord, the love, Lord loves people. He loves people. He is saving a people for himself. And he intends to use us in doing that. So, are you investing in people or avoiding them? Investing in people is costly and time-consuming. Relationships are inefficient. But mature Christians are growing in loving what our Lord loves. Does that describe you? Are you growing in loving what our Lord loves, in who our Lord loves? What do your relationships with strangers reveal about how you see yourself in relationship to Christ? Do you understand yourself to be a stranger that the Lord has brought into his home and given you a place at his table? That's what we confess as Christians. We were once far off, but we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson describes the Holy Spirit as the homemaker. Through the Spirit's work, God comes into our hearts and makes his home with us. Are you a homemaker in that sense? Are you inviting others in so that you can share what you have and share Christ with them? Who are you inviting in? Well, this brings us back to where we began. Our relationships with Christ, our relationships with people reveal our relationship with Christ. Our love is to be rooted in our faith in the gospel. So what does your home say about your faith? There may be some of us that are they're really struggling in our homes. That there, there's relational breakdown. I'm not, I'm not heaping shame upon you for the, the suffering that you may be going through. But what I'm asking you is the way that you love others in your home. How does that reveal your relationship in Christ? The way that you love your spouse 
the way that you love your children? What does that show about where your faith is? What about your love for strangers? Is it clear from your life that you know yourself to have been forgiven much? Or does it appear that you've been forgiven little? Let's pray. Our Father, I pray for your help that you will open our eyes to the ways that we have been forgiven much. As we think about these very practical commands, I can't imagine any of us leave this room feeling like we've got it all together. So Father, I pray that you would deepen our love for you as we meditate on Jesus and his love for us, and that this sense of your love would be what what helps us and motivates us as husbands and wives to love each other, as parents to manage our households well, and as neighbors to show hospitality. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.